0: To FC, a team with a new direction after an off-season makeover.
1: It's an old
0: Canadian affair.
1: Matt working against Morgan. Puts it across the it ball!
0: Make those rainbow in my mind When
2: I think of you
0: sometimes
1: I'm time with you Just the truth Welcome to the Two Solitudes Podcast. I'm Dwayne Rollins here in sunny Toronto. Kevin Laramie, he's baking in Montreal, apparently. Uh, like, <laughs> like, like 700 degrees there or something?
0: Uh, in the shade, yes, it is. So can yeah. you imagine it's so like, it's crazy. I've seen people fried eggs on their sidewalks.
1: <laughs> well, uh, everyone knows Montreal is well known for the massive amount of heat it gets. I don't think people outside of Canada realize that we literally have the worst weather in the world. Our summers are massively hot and humid and just horrible and our winners are well everyone knows what our winners are so your awesome.
0: last year in the spin of 2 weeks i i felt a minus 30 degrees celsius and the week and a half after was 30 degrees celsius i wanted to die
1: yeah that that's canadian weather for you and uh yeah we'll uh, we'll bring that up in more detail in our canadian weather podcast uh, which <laughs> is uh, available on itunes uh <laughs> to thunderstorms.com or something
0: but speaking of available it's just a quick note to tell the listeners that the Two Solitudes podcast and all the other shows that we produce are now available on Stitcher radio so the next couple of days you'll see us pumping the shows on Stitcher it's a great way to listen to our shows with a lot of different type of players you can listen on uh, Android I, on uh, Apple products on websites on different browsers with the Stitcher radio app you can listen to our show anywhere anytime so uh, like our show on Stitcher
1: And it does help us out a little bit, too, but it's more about the benefit for you, though. Absolutely. (laughs) All right. Uh, We got Richard Whittle on the line uh, today. Richard Whittle is a freelance writer, freelance soccer writer. He used to write for The Score. Uh, Many people would know his work from there. He's an expert on analytics and an expert on financial fair play. And we thought with the start of the European season coming up that it would be an interesting time to have some FFP talk. And also just the analytics debate. He wrote an article a couple weeks ago which basically said that the analytics debate will be over in about 10 years' time and we'll all have moved on and just accepted the fact that advanced analytics uh, sort of mathematical formats are are part of how you evaluate the game. So we brought Richard on to talk about that. And, uh, Kevin, I think uh, we might as well just bring him on now, and uh, we'll take a quick break before And welcome back to Two Salt Podcast. The Way with Kevin Laramay. Got Richard Woodall on the line, the uh, freelance soccer writer. He specializes in writing about finance stuff. He's a big financial fair play writer. Uh, also talks a lot about analytics, and we thought we'd have a conversation about both, both the uh, future of analytics in soccer and uh, FFP as well. Richard, thanks for joining us.
2: Not at all. My pleasure.
1: Richard, you wrote an article last week where you essentially said that this current debate, and I'm using air quotes for those that can't see me, which is everyone since this isn't a video podcast, um, on the future of analytics in soccer won't even be a debate again in a, in a few years. Can you just expand on that thought and, and say what you were talking about there?
2: Yeah. I uh, You know, I, I succumbed to a bit of a clickbait with a provocative headline that essentially said that uh, – That the discussion on uh, soccer analytics will be over in in 10 years' time, and obviously, I think that's slight exaggeration. But the the core idea is that, you know, we've seen it in a lot of uh, you know the sister sports in in North American professional leagues, uh, where, you know, a a sort of fairly um, typical debate between traditionalists and analytics boosters has uh, has ended with you know uh, the actual Clubs um, absorbing some of the smarter and more intelligent analysts, um, you know, into their um, into their payroll. And um, the piece that I wrote for 21st Club was essentially making the argument that you know that, that um, you know there's about a decade you know in which clubs can can become first movers and uh, and sort of uh, look at the uh, the analytics landscape right now and begin to really seriously discuss how some of these ideas could be practically applied to to soccer operations, whether in, in Europe or, or in North American MLS. Um, and it's better to start early than, than to wait, um, you know, because it's always good to get first market advantage before analytics, you know, goes behind closed doors and, and becomes more mainstream. That's not to say that clubs aren't already doing that, but I think, uh, you know, obviously everyone employs like a, a performance analyst, but I'm talking about more you know, statistical science than than you know than the old uh, video review stuff. So, so yeah, I was just trying to make the case that uh, you know the the debate we're having right now won't be as as much of a debate um, on the club side uh, in the next decade or so.
1: Certainly, you brought up the example of the sports in North America, and here in Canada, we're, we're seeing a boom in the last month of the, these hockey analytic fellows getting, getting hired. It's, it's quite an amazing story for anyone listening outside of Canada to watch what's happened in the NHL over the last month, and and kind of the uh, the Twitter critics, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, getting gobbled up by these NHL teams. Um, hockey is a sport that's very conservative, inherently conservative, has, has a lot of comparison points to soccer. Do you, do you think that... Soccer is even more conservative than that. That there's even more resistance to these advanced measures.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it was interesting the same week that you know that uh, Tyler got hired, an extra skater, and and uh, you know both the Oilers and the Leafs sort of changed their hockey operations and and uh, you know it, absorbing some of the better known uh, analytics experts on the hockey side. You know that that it was the same week that you know Malky McKay was busted for sending some extremely offensive. Uh, you know, uh, uh, xenophobic tweets or texts or whatever. So, so yeah, I think it's uh, it's a really frustrating thing. And um, the, the, there's a, it's, particularly in English football, there's definitely a very very strong conservative old boys network. Um, and uh, and convincing um, the people who actually are behind um, the major decisions in, in football um, that it's worth their while to sort of look at more cost-effective ways to recruit players and to, and to build winning football clubs is, is sort of really difficult. That said, um, you know, it, there's not – there's so much money um, in English football now that it really – there's really not that much for a club to lose by even hiring on as you know, in a part-time consultancy, just taking risks on some of the more prominent, um, you know, statistical analysts working in the game today. And I think we're going to see more and more of that um, – as the years progress, as some of these analysts keep working, they'll get higher profiles. Um, certainly, you know, the European press is now sort of, you know, in the last couple of years have, have started to really come around to paying attention to some of these people. And some of these analysts are definitely positioning themselves, I think, to work privately um, with uh, with football clubs, whether as consultants or full-time employees. So, um, so I think as much as football is definitely conservative, um, I just think there's so much money in the game right now through television rights and all the rest that, there's really not much for them to lose to. open the door to some of these people to their ideas and see how they can implement them at their clubs.
0: All right. In the least term, for a, a newbie of advanced statistics like me, if we look at like a baseball, the part, um, the Moneyball money system, it's get players on base. It's the easiest way to explain how those statistics can help you put your team as becoming a, a contender or a bigger powerhouse. In in soccer, which way would you describe the uh, the positivity or the effects of those statistics in the game? What's the move that the team should do with all those stats now?
2: Um, that's a good question. I think uh, I think it would probably be pretty difficult to boil down, uh, you know, the research that's being done in analytics now to sort of one core recommendation for all teams. I think, um, you know, if I was to say shoot more, because for example, <laughs> you know, we we talk about TSR and total shots ratio, and, and generally teams, um, at least in Europe, teams that that tend to, you know, take more shots than they can succeed tend to score more goals and, and then tend to get more points on the table. Um, but that said, you know, just making that recommendation is really dangerous because it's not just shoot more. You have to shoot more from more advantageous areas of the pitch to which any manager would say, well, of course, and then you have <laughs> to, to talk to them about the situations where you can increase the number of shots. So I think there's a – there's, you know, I, there's – I would say three or four really interesting metrics that that, uh, that are being used in soccer analytics right now. And I think the trick is to use them all in conjunction with one another um, to, to, you know, make a major difference. And I know that, you know, one of those – I don't want to get too much into the concepts of it because, you know, you can, you, can, <laughs> you can be here for an hour. But uh, one of the one of the major concepts that, that's definitely borrowed um, in part from hockey analytics is the idea of game states. So how teams behave when they're a goal down as opposed to how they – behave when they're a goal up and I do know you know um, from from several people who have been working with Premier League clubs that even making adjustments based on understanding how teams change their behavior when they're a goal ahead or a goal behind um, has you know uh, uh, you know, increased their ability to, to win in those situations so it's just about taking all the metrics we know together and seeing how one affects the other and just uh, taking a really measured approach um, and then uh, and that, and definitely changing results on the pitch for sure
0: with, uh, before we move on to finance talk, there's a little question here that I have that steps on both fronts of the, those uh, arguments. Now, we have a league that has a salary cap, and with all those advanced statistics, does the salary cap league skew some of the results that you get with those statistics because you have a higher tier of technical or tactical players that are way above the rest? Does it have an effect on those statistics, the fact that we have a salary cap in Major League Soccer?
2: yeah there's um i mean m l s actually this, like has all these outliers in a number of different areas um you know there, for a long time for example i'm not sure this is still the case actually uh teams that that uh finished higher up the table on average had less less than fifty percent possession, which was definitely different than than most european clubs um and there's a few other things as well uh behavior at game states is is different in in uh I can't remember the specific stat, but I think that um, you know teams that were trailing a goal behind shot 8% more um, in the Premier League, but in, in MLS they shot 20% more. And I think that's – that's uh, I sort of speculated that was a function of, of greater parity uh, between teams in MLS. Um, and I don't know if that has as much to do with the disparity at the top and the bottom in terms of technical ability. There's some other things as well. There's a lot of turnovers in MLS, which, which – uh, you know anyone who's watched the league <laughs> a lot has <laughs> well, once his, his, once at all yeah yeah exactly it's uh it's not exactly a counterintuitive statistic so so yeah I mean there's a lot of quirks in m l s that you sort of have to work with that make it a unique league but uh, that's also what makes the analytics interesting because you can you can begin to tease out some major major cultural differences uh between m l s and its uh, European counterparts for sure.
1: I think it's interesting, Richard, when you talk about 20% increased shots against uh, anyone who's watched TFC over the past few years and has heard the term Tobias time, which is uh, a <laughs> Esquizado coined term, will understand that that's uh, certainly a phenomenon well from with here in Toronto.
2: Yeah, I would be interested to see what those numbers are for Toronto in their last six seasons, and particularly their last two, because it's been such a huge problem for them.
1: 90% more shots. Uh, Richard, will we ever see like a value-over-replacement-player type stat in soccer, or is it just too complex of a game?
2: Um, I think it's probably too complex for something approaching, you know, wins above replacement, um, although some people have speculated it, and there's other ways you can do it. Um, Dan Altman has used, uh, Shapely Values, um, which is like a, you know, a, an interesting, um, you know, economic, uh, algor- well, just a mathematical tool you can use to sort of parse out players that are, uh, contributing more to their team than others, but I think, uh, the idea of boiling down, you know, uh, how a single player is going to contribute to a team is uh, is, is right now uh, really really difficult. That's not to say that will always be the case, but uh, but I think it's more advantageous for teams to use individual player analytics as like a as a means not to make really bad decisions as opposed to making really really good ones. So if you have three like players, um, you know you can use various uh, various tools, um, even just really basic tools, you know. Uh, Shots per game uh, Just really really sort of basic stuff To sort of make a decision And even then that decision Might not always work out for you So to my my mind uh, Using individual player analytics Is better just to make sure That you avoid making a really really bad decision That might otherwise look like a good one Um, uh, As opposed to you know uh, Something like Moneyball Where you're finding tremendously undervalued players uh, Although that will definitely happen as well To a lesser degree I'd say uh, to,
1: to shift the conversation to financial fair play for a, for a little bit, um, I have a couple questions on that, and, and then we'll we'll thank you for your time. Um, the Frank Lampard deal. There's a lot of people in Europe that are concerned about this might be an end around that Manchester City is using to. You know, you also see them holding a team in, in Melbourne, the Melbourne former Hearts, now Melbourne City. Uh, do you view uh, Lampard's uh, loan deal to back to City as, as sort of something that's circumventing uh, FFP?
2: Yeah, I don't know about specifically about that, that loan, but I do know that, uh, you know, there's a number of avenues that teams have been using to uh, bypass financial fair play. The, the basic thing for fans to take into account is that financial fair play um, is all about breaking even. Um, that And that says nothing about revenue or expenses. So the idea that uh, people have that FFP will sort of end big money transfers is, is kind of naive and incorrect because, you know, as we've seen, um, teams have gone out of the way to increase revenue in order to respond to the restrictions of financial first play. So that can involve major, major sponsorship deals, some of which are more questionable than others. Um, we've seen a lot of us at the big club level, certainly in the Premier League, uh, you know, uh, with Man City, it's obviously the Eddie Had Adi- deal. Um, and then there's, you know, loan schemes, which is – you know, uh, Chelsea's really been um, active in using... They, they sort of have unofficial partnerships with uh, Vitesse in Eredivisie and, and uh, Middlesbrough um, in England, uh, sort of laying out players and, and using those players basically to, as, as to speculate and then selling them on when they need to increase revenues. Um, uh, obviously, they can't put all these players in the first team, so they can loan them out as well. And then multiple club ownership is another avenue because... You know, uh, city helps break even in part by, you know, selling in, in, you know, I'm doing now the inverted commas intellectual property between their, their sister assets. Um, now I'm not saying those, those deals aren't necessarily above board, but it just means, you know, you have more sister clubs They just offer you means to, uh, means to increase revenue if you need to, uh, to make sure you're on the right side of the little, of the ledger. Um, so yeah, I mean, UEFA created this headache and this is often what happens when you try to introduce, you know, well-meaning legislation is that clubs hire lawyers and they find very, very, you know, interesting and complicated uh, financial um, sort of uh, tools to get around those those restrictions. So, so yeah, I would definitely not be surprised if uh, if the the Lampard loan deal was was, was part of an overall uh, you know financial per play strategy for sure.
1: Uh, Richard, uh, you know there are very few people out there that have written as much about FFP and, and know mu- as much about it as Richard. So I, I'll take his word on this. So I'm just going to ask you a general, overriding view to end the end the conversation. As it stands today, do you view fi- view financial fair play as working?
2: Well, it's a it's a good question. I think, um, you know, I it, really the whole point, and I've stressed this over and over again, the point of financial play, fair play, whether or not it's it's going to achieve that point is up for debate. But the point was, was never to punish clubs with wealthy benefactors. It was always to lower, you know, to help slow um, uh, player wage and transfer uh, inflation. Um, now, you know, if you focus solely on the biggest clubs, and these are the clubs that have the means to buy, you know, a number of teams around the world or to reach 400 million pounds, uh, you know, uh, sponsorship deals over five or 10 years, For the vast majority of those clubs, they don't have access to financial tools like that to sort of circumvent financial fair play. So I think it's important to focus what's going on at the lower league level as well. Um, Obviously, the championship and and below introducing their own sort of break-even provisions there. Um, just to see how it's working and whether or not, uh, over time, uh, wage and transfer fee- inflation will slow down. And I, I know that some people, like uh, Christopher Flanagan, he's, he's based in Liverpool, I believe, has, has, has done some work and has already noted that uh, that indeed, uh, you know, wages and, and and transfer fees are slowing down in terms of, uh, you know, year over year inflation. So, um, so there's some small signs that it might be working. I think that. Uh, That financial fair play alone doesn't address some of the uh, questions of inequity, um, you know, preventing uh, smaller teams from sort of jumping the queue by spending above their means for a short period of time in hopes of recouping um, those those temporary losses with future successes. I don't think it's really addressed that that competitive imbalance. Um, And uh, there's a number of ways that UEFA can do that, you know, luxury taxes, but then they have a legal battle. you know, in order to make sure those don't violate any any open competitive laws in, in in the European Union. So, yeah, it's really really complicated, and it's and it's we might not see the effects for years, and we may never in fact see them, and and FFP FFP might end up being a failure. But I think that the intentions are definitely good. Um, but we, we you know we still the jury's still out for sure. Richard, why don't you tell the, the listeners how they can best follow you uh, and your work? I'm at uh, R Whittall W H I T T A L L on Twitter, and usually. Uh, Whatever I write will end up there. <laughs> uh, but uh, I also write uh, pretty regularly for 21stclub.com. Uh, you uh, should check them out. Pretty cool. Pretty cool uh, company. All right, Richard. Well,
1: thanks for joining us today, Richard. Uh, interesting stuff. I'm sure we'll have time to to check in down the line. All right, cheers.
2: Thanks for having me on.
0: Thanks for listening to the Two Solitude Soccer Podcast with Kevin Laramie and Dwayne Rollins. You can reach the guys on Twitter at 24th Minute and at Kevin or both of them at Two Solitudes Pod. Reach the guys on email. Two SolitudeSpodcast at gmail But especially subscribe on Stitcher Radio. Now back to the show.
1: And thanks again for Richard for joining us. Uh Richard's a smart guy that knows knows his stuff real well. So uh if you want to talk about financial fair play, he's he's a great source for it. He's done a lot of research on it. Uh, analytics work is also a specialty of his. It's just a, an interesting niche that I think gets uh, underreported uh, by you know those of us that get obsessed with like the you know, sort of the scoreboard aspect of the game. Um, I just find it really interesting, and you should follow Richard and, and uh, follow his work, because it's uh, quite a rewarding experience. But, uh, and it's shocking
0: uh, to me, Duane, that he's talking about all those bloggers, and those course bloggers getting paid in the, in the National Hockey League right now. I'm surprised that he's not even getting paid by any Major League Soccer team.
1: Yeah, it's a more conservative sport. I know that it's funny, because I think the office stuff is out there, and it's a mm-hmm. little... On some levels it's been more accepted than than hockey, and that's our direct comparisons here in Canada of course, but in other levels it's been less accepted. I think they accepted to a certain point, but whereas in hockey there was a risk it even accepted up to a certain point. Like the, here in Toronto the Leafs completely rejected the ID even though all the analytics people were screaming from the rooftops that they were about to fall off the cliff all year, and <laughs> they did. So um at any rate. But uh it's an interesting, um, sort of evolution, and, uh, I'm gonna start attaching my resume to all of my future stats articles that I write, even though I'm at a very basic level, so. well,
0: <laughs> like you never know, people. right? Just put your phone number and email address there. So you never know what's gonna happen.
1: I am available for guys. I'll work for, uh, you know, actually, I want NYCFC because I I think that they, they might have more money to give me uh, on the financial court play, and they wouldn't even have to count it. So there you go.
0: <laughs> a Five million dollar paycheck for a year just to count numbers.
1: Yeah, I'll I'll go to New York City and count offside traps or something. Anyway, um, uh, all right, we move on. <laughs> No, but a couple of topics, uh, Kevin. Uh, when we recorded last week's podcast, the Tim Lewicki, uh news had just sort of broken a little bit. Uh, it was reported by Elliot Friedman, a hockey writer here in Canada, that he uh, he was going to leave. Lawicki was. And uh, there was a lot of denials for a couple days. And then between then and now, uh, it's come out official that Tim Lewicki, the CEO of McLeod Sports and Entertainment, is uh, leaving. Uh, leaving no later than June of next year, probably around Christmas time, if you believe the local hype. Uh, this is of course received a lot of attention here in Toronto and particularly, uh, there's a lot of, um, consternation on the MLS side because Lord, he was a guy that really held TFC up on equal footing with, uh, the Raptors and the Leafs, which, uh, no one else at MLSE had done that before. And it is certainly, you know, in terms of the revenues and, and the amount of attention that they get, they don't, they aren't on the same footing right now, to be honest, but he held them up as such. So, uh, from an outside perspective, Kevin, I'll, I'll throw to you. Uh, do, do you think that uh, Tim Lewicki leaving is something that TFC fans should be worried about? Well, from the outside,
0: it does look, indeed, because uh, he was the man behind the bloody big deal. He was the one who made it happen, who stick his neck on the line and added pieces to that puzzle to finally, at the end, have a, big, a bloody big deal with a couple big players joining the club. I don't think without his work, uh, the Bradley of the world would have been here. Defoe, maybe, but the Bradley... Probably not. He was really the most important piece, like wiki, in just giving credibility back to this soccer club, which MLSC almost killed during the years before that with the mismanagement of that product. Now the product on the pitch was getting better. Hopefully, the product behind the scenes, which is becoming better, won't go back to the trend it used to have before like wiki stepped in to take over Kevin Payne's job. A uh, question for you, Dwayne. I'll turn it back to you. Do you think like, wiki leaving is going to be more hurtful to TFC than the other entity or MLSC?
1: Well, here's my thing with the Wiki, and I, I am torn with him and his legacy. I do think that there's a lot of really valuable things that happen. There's, it's no doubt. I mean, you look at the results and on the Raptors side and, and then on the, the, the TFC side. The Leafs side's a little up in the air, but it's not really the position of this podcast to get into the Raptors and the Leafs, so we'll leave them all well enough alone for now, but... All three of them, certainly major changes and major changes at the direct day-to-day operation of the team. And this is what I've said on the other podcasts that I've appeared on. I was on Soccer, uh, Soccer Morning. I was on, uh, Red Car Radio here in Toronto. Uh, we, we've talked about this to death right now. It seems almost redundant from my perspective today. Yeah, but
0: you kept the best for last on the two Again,
1: Yeah. But it's always been my position that yeah, if he's made the right, if you believe in the power of Wiki and you believe that he was a successful and smart guy that knows how to run teams, then you should trust that he made the right hires uh, to run operations. operations. And here for TFC's perspective, that's the, Tim Bezbachenko. Um, and Tim Bezbachenko is a guy that if you look at you look at the bloody big deal, that's Bradley, that's Defoe. It's certainly Gilberto. Is impressive. Gilberto. Yeah, well, is more on the Vesvichinko <laughs> side of things, I think. I think is that's his, his signature signing so far. And you also look at uh, Justin Morrow, and you look at uh, the trades that he's made in the season. These aren't Tim Lewicki. Tim Lewicki's not oh, doing the nuts here. and bolts of, of bringing in Warner. You know, like that's Bezbachenko. So if you believe in the small moves that TFC has made uh, to make them a better football club this year, then I think you shouldn't be as worried about this as, as you maybe are. Um, the big stuff? Can they get another meeting with another Jermaine Defoe? That remains to be seen, but I'll say this. If they are successful, if they are winning championships, then they are going to get meetings, particularly with U.S. internationals, particularly with North Americans and people like that, or CONCACAF stars. Uh, they're going to get meetings. You're always going to struggle, and you always were going to struggle, with the big, big, big European names that they think MLS, they think New York, L.A., and apparently Miami and Montreal, hey,
0: hey, hey.
1: <laughs> they think of the big U.S. cities. They don't necessarily think of us up here in Canada, and uh, and you're always going to struggle with them. So I think the best way to look at this is that you just have to, to view it as if Vesvichanko can handle the other stuff around it and make this a solid team and Defoe stays relatively healthy for a couple more years, you would expect that they might continue to get better, and maybe even in the next couple years, I'll say it out loud, maybe even in the next couple of years win a championship, then there's not going to be a problem. Um, the problem is if those other things don't work out, and then they remain kind of flubbing in the wind, and then who's going to come in and make the hire to replace Vesvichenko? Bez- and that was always the problem before, Kevin.
0: And what does it change for the status of BMO Field and the partnership with the Will it still be a no to the Argos, or will that change, change other things in MLSC and yeah. the BMO status?
1: Yeah, I, well that's a complicated issue. I think it's being driven more on the on the uh, board level than it was ever uh you know Loewitty trying to desire to own a CFL team. I think that the board just believed that that they would have to own the CFL team in order to to have a chance with their spin-off group to get an NFL team here in the town. And God, I hope they never get an NFL team. Let me just say that out loud. It would be the biggest disaster to sports media in this city. All we'd hear is bloody NFL talk all summer.
0: The Toronto Towers, they'll be oh, you and your team.
1: You <laughs> they'll be right
0: next to the fan tower.
1: Underestimate how little I want to ever see the NFL in this city. At any rate. Um,
0: <laughs> it only plays for not even 20 weeks a year, but during 52 weeks, that's all you'll hear.
1: Yeah, well, that and the lead. between that and the Leafs, there'd be no room for any other sports tackle. None. <laughs>
0: the so, Raptors will go bankrupt.
1: Pretty much. Yeah, like, I mean, they, you know, oh, the Raptors have played a playoff game. We haven't talked about them all year. Uh, all <laughs> right, moving on. Um, look, I, I, in terms of the Argos stuff, right now it seems dead. It's never dead. Um, I've gone to the point now that I'm just hoping that they can withhold the move of the Argos to Beemo Field until the technology around artificial surface is such that it's not mo- discernibly different between grass. because I have lost all hope that we're going to do much more than just hold the door back while the police try and jam it in for a little bit. while wow. that, that's how I view the Argos. Eventually it's going to happen. Uh, hopefully it can happen at a time when the surface that they're playing on, isn't always uh, losing quality, and I'm not sure that would be the case today. So I don't think the Wiki leaving has much to do with that.
0: Uh, at least the status quo is good for now.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, the the Argos. I, I I don't wish the Argos any old will. I I hope that they do find a stadium to play. Uh, I you can, just
0: don't want them to be Bebo, Yeah, we talked about just, that before. Nothing M- to do M- with the Argos, it's just not a BMO.
1: Yeah, MLC has a lot of money. Why don't they build an old stadium up in Downsview?
0: Yeah, it, exactly
1: show well, uh, somewhere. There's probably a property that's a for renovation. Just build it there. Mississauga. They, they, it's more of a 905 team anyway. <laughs> look, time of other teams' talk here now. Uh, <laughs> well, what This is my bottom line, and then I'll wrap it up. Like I said, I've said a lot of words on this already. I, I think that he is a, a guy that has done some really good work, but I don't think that we should ever get caught up in the call of personality when it comes to sports executives. That there's no single person that can only do do the one job, right? Like there's not he's not irreplaceable. Uh the the question is whether you trust MLSE, the company, to replace him. And there is a lot of evidence to suggest in the city that that you shouldn't trust mlse to plan a one car parade. Right? So that's that's the the problem and the consternation that we all have is we don't trust that MLSE is going to hire the right person. We've already heard Tom and Selmi's Name higher. and if they do that, then there's going to be a bloody riots at Binglefield.
0: <laughs> it won't be the big, it won't be the bloody it'll be the bloody the, big
1: the, riot. Yeah, the bloody big riot. The, you know, Tom Anselmi has what, Tom Anselmi and TFC. I doubt you could ever find in any professional sports team ever anywhere in the world, and I am not using hyperbole here. I doubt you could find a worse run team than Tom Anselmi running TFC anywhere in the history of sports. I dare you tweet at us if you find a better example I don't know the LA Clippers maybe I don't know at any anyway, rate
0: Montreal Expos 2005
1: uh, yeah maybe they were trying to get runner to town though and I don't think <laughs> there's any evidence that Insomniac was trying to run them out of town anyway I moved on I'm getting angry now so we're going to move on and we're going to talk about real briefly we're going to talk about the U-20s that just wrapped up um, we're going to have a fuller conversation with the U20s on the Five Rings podcast, because it's just a better fit there, I think, Kevin. You know what somebody asked you this week, though? They asked me, what's a soccer
0: tournament? And I him, it's, it's a group of teams from different countries that get together, and at the end, German wins.
1: <laughs> and that has, the old joke has, has proven itself again. Uh, Germany beat Nigeria 1-0. Uh, yesterday, though, if you, you want to feel bad for a young woman who uh, really made the mistake of her life, uh, Nigeria was would have won this game had a player clearly in an offside position not tapped the ball that was already rolling into the goal over the line Um, it's just a disaster it's a heartbreaking uh, thing to see if you go on YouTube you can probably find it uh, Nigerian offside would have won U20 World Cup or something Google that and you'll find it um you know, a decent tournament overall, I thought. There was a lot of a lot of worry about the attendance through it, but I think that it picked up a little bit at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not going to match what we saw uh, in Germany, but it did match, I think, what we saw in Japan. It is a U-20 tournament. If you look at the history of this thing, the big, big numbers just aren't there. No one outside of this country is going to worry about the numbers. They had 16,000 out for the final.
0: Which is pretty decent. It's more than the Canada game, which you wouldn't have predicted that for a final that has a a non-home participant, so I was pretty happy with 16,000. Yeah, and had
1: Canada somehow made that final, I think you quite obviously would have seen 25,000, 30,000 in there, I suspect. Easily. And it was a beautiful day in Montreal, by all accounts, as we talked about off the top. Oh, yeah, the stadium roof was open. Not. (laughs) Yeah, you can't do that. Uh, (laughs) Montreal is having, uh, do you still call it Indian summer? I don't know. I guess it's still August. Indian
0: summer is a little later. It's like in August.
1: Yeah, so they're just having a late. It's not
0: like it's in like in October, I bet. Mean. Yeah.
1: So you know, I and mean, the Montreal soccer community might be a little burnt out from watching the Impact lose too. So it's it's <laughs> going be a struggle at times. But um, I think on the Canadian side of things, you got to be somewhat happy with the tournament. I don't think I think John Herdman said about that uh, it was it was a nice run that didn't exceed expectations, so it didn't put too much pressure on them for next year.
0: And that's all we could ask for, because going to next year, we don't expect the the women to win it all. We expect to do a good performance to reach the highest they can, but we don't putting the pressure on them to win the whole thing. And I think that's the exact same type of performance that the U20s did, with a good victory over North Korea, which probably is the the highlight of the tournament. With the well, the comeback win against Finland is pretty impressive, but the one nothing win at Montreal. Which I was there. I have to say, I have a, have a little place in my heart forever now, seeing those ladies win one nothing against one of the best team in the world, and the females in the U20s, it was fun to see, and I'm quite happy with their tournament, to be honest.
1: Yeah, uh, Daniel Scuizato, uh, which we've now mentioned twice in this podcast, uh, our guest from last week, uh, called the, the Finland game the most exciting Canada game he's ever been at, and uh, he's a guy that's been to a lot of Canada games. so. Uh, you know the young women; uh, they did did us proud in, in those two weeks, and uh, I think that, uh, as Herdman said, it was enough of a of a performance to give you some hope that they can entertain us next year, the full senior team. But it wasn't so much that there's suddenly some unrealistic expectations on them to be championship contenders, which they're not. They're their contenders to go to a quarterfinal or so, and if Christine Sinclair gets hot and you get the right amount of luck, which every sport event occurs, then you never know beyond that. But realistically, I think what we saw this past summer is more what we might see next summer, and if that happens, I think we'll all be happy with it. Um, as we said, Kevin, uh, the, for the rest of the conversation about the U-20s, uh, you can listen to the Five Rings podcast. Uh, also, just a quick uh, note on that. a housekeeping note on that. We did have Teddy Katz, the... Uh, from TO2015 scheduled for this week. We did have to postpone that, but it's a good postponement because uh, TO2015 is making a major announcement on the uh, 14th of September and they've been uh, kind enough to allow us to speak to them about that announcement on the 15th of September. So a little bit of a housekeeping note there. If you were uh, looking for a TO2015 interview on Five Rings this week, get up to wait a couple more weeks. It better be worth it.
0: And that show will be out Tuesday around dinner time. So look for it on Twitter, Facebook, and on now Stitcher Radio as well.
1: Stitcher Radio. All right, Stitcher Radio. So uh, Stitcher Radio, we'll take a quick break and we'll come back and Stitcher Radio uh, talk a little bit more.
0: Thanks for listening to the Two Solitude Soccer Podcast on Stitcher Radio with Dwayne Rollins and Kevin Laramie. Subscribe to the show on Stitcher Radio. Listen to the show on Stitcher Radio. Stitcher Radio. Stitcher Radio. Would you just please subscribe to the show on Stitcher Radio. Thank you very much for subscribing to the show. And now, back to the show on Stitcher Radio. Coming soon on Stitcher Radio.
1: Stitcher Radio. And welcome back to our uh, Canadian review of the action in... MLS, with a little nod to our NESL friends as well, and I think we're uh, due for an Ottawa Fury uh, guest in the next week or so. I'll, I'll put my efforts into that, Kevin. I think that they got a good win this week, a 2-1 win over the Indy 11. We talked to Peter Wilt way back when on the show uh, from the Indy 11 about uh, about his season. Uh, not the best season on the pitch, but Indy still does well the, well offside the pitch, so good for them. And uh, they definitely,
0: but... definitely needed three points for Ottawa Fury, because they were bottom dwellers, and they definitely need some points. They don't want to stay there.
1: Yeah, that was their first win of the fall season, and a big, big win for the for FC Edmonton. Uh, I think that the FC Edmonton listeners will be happy to know that the the two solitudes bump is in full effect. Six points since Colin Miller spoke to us. Two one win over Fort Lauderdale puts them up into fourth place in the overall two season standing. They're combining the fall and the spring standings to. to uh, Figure the playoff spots are the outs, so basically the fall, the, the spring champion, which is Minnesota, mm-hmm. has already got a playoff spot. The fall champion will get a playoff spot, and the next two best records, uh, overall them, excluding the two teams that are in there, uh, will make the playoffs as well. So uh, if you were to look at the, the NASL season as it shook out right now, Edmonton is right there, battling for one of those playoff spots, and once you get into those playoffs, you never know, especially. Especially if you get a home scene cold Edmonton in uh, in the fall. Uh they could maybe uh maybe do some damage. So we'll be cheering for uh, the Eddies moving forward and hopefully and to uh, uh
0: to all the other coaches that are listening to us, either from Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, or Ottawa, uh, Edmonton's coach has been undefeated since he's been on our show. So uh come on our show if you want to have a couple of uh, three points to your uh,
1: table. The two solitudes bump. Hashtag two solitudes bump. Get her going, folks. Anyway. Um <laughs> Speaking of teams that didn't get a bump. (laughs) Bump in the road. Montreal Impact. They had a one-game winning streak heading into this one. And where does that winning streak stand right now, Kevin?
0: Well, they're still undefeated in the Champions League, but I think you were referring to Major League Soccer, and that win streak is over, my friends.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess we should talk about the CCL uh, quickly. Uh, They did, I think, save their season. It wasn't the most impressive result, I didn't think. But
0: uh, if you look at the... The team they played against, and the strength of the team, though, is unimpressive. But if you look at uh, everything together as a whole, winning in Salvador, in a very hostile country, in a hostile environment, on a very bad pitch, they got the win on the road with a penalty against them. Gladly, they had one with for them. But still, it was an iffy, iffy game. Montreal came out with three points, no injuries, which is very good for the CCL, but... They lost 4-2 against Thierry Henry and Bradley Wright Phillips this weekend. And you know, I have a feeling, Dwayne, that uh, Bradley Wright Phillips might break Wondolowski or Lasseter's record this year.
1: Yeah, the Bradley Wright Phillips is having a hell of a season. There's no doubt about that playing off of Henry. I, I think that uh, Bradley Wright Phillips is going to be uh, the New York Red Bulls' major payroll mistake next year, however, yeah, with, right. with Henry Lee's. But we could talk about that in the offseason, maybe. Um, I think that sets up to get back to the impact, really you need four points, four points in two games against New York, which New York's going to be fighting for playoff spots. So likely a New York team that's trying to play acute with the lineups uh, might just be enough to get Montreal through to the quarterfinals of the CCL, which would give you a, a springtime uh, match-up and a little bit of hope through the off-season. I know that feeling very well here in Toronto after a terrible season. They at least have the L.A. Uh, Galaxy game at uh, at Skydome to look forward to. Um, you know, do you think that they can get four points in those two games against New York?
0: I have a good feeling that yes because I have a pretty certain that Thierry is not going to travel down to Salvador to play against He's not. They're not going to bring Tim Cahill to the bright Lions They'll go with a very young reserve-type lineup to Fully focused on Major League Soccer and especially a good spot. They're not trying to win a supporter show this year. They really have their mindset on the MLS Cup. But to have a good shot at the MLS Cup, you still need to be third or fourth. Fifth is pushing it. And if they can do... They want to be second or first because that's when you get home advantage and everything. And New York can get a really good home advantage if they get the publicity out there. They can fill out the stadium. 30,000 people can be a big home and field advantage. So with that, I have a feeling Montreal... It's going to squeak by them in the Champions League. Going to play their A lineup in the Champions League like they did this week. And they have a good chance of uh, going to the quarterfinals. Why not? It's the only bright spot in the season. Put all your eggs in that basket and just go all in with that.
1: Yeah, I'll play, I'll, I, I agree for the most part, I will play a little bit of devil's advocate to say that uh, New York may want a little bit of a bump next spring uh, with NYCFC coming in, uh, okay. that they might want to, to draw attention away from that, so maybe the CCL will be a bit more of a focus uh, when they play that home-and-home home with the impact, well, they still have a lot of games left, but at any rate... Um, I don't think that's necessarily going to be the case, but uh, I, I will put that out as a possibility in terms of the game this week, Kevin. Uh, I don't know. What do you want to say about it?
0: Those damn games against Thierry Henry, he seems like he's well aware that his French public is watching him against Montreal, and he always puts on a great show for them, either his public from the Quebec area or from the French area. Anybody. The Francophones, he loves to play in front of them, and it shows. Two goals again, another assist. I don't know what's the tally in almost three seasons against Montreal, but he's almost had ten goals against the impact, and I'm not even exaggerating. I've never been fortunate enough
1: to see Henri play in Montreal, but uh, tell me, Kevin, I know when he plays in Toronto, you see a lot of uh, Arsenal kits in the stands. Uh, Now, they blend a little bit because they're red, but they might stand out a bit more in Montreal. Do you see a lot of... uh fans that aren't necessarily coming out for other impact games for those games?
0: You saw it more the first year at the Big O, when there was almost 50,000 people, no, 36,000 people to watch the New York Red Bulls, same year as Beckham. I think it was a couple of weeks after Beckham. So it had the same type of publicity and marketing to advertise it as Thierry Henry coming to Montreal. Nowadays, there's not, no focus at all on the other team by the Montreal Impact. So that trend has faded out a little bit, but you still see the... Either like the Barca, Thierry Henry with Arsenal, Thierry Henry shirt here and there. But it's uh, becoming a lot less uh, apparent than it used to be.
1: Yeah, there, there's uh, an outrageous amount of Arsenal fans here in Toronto. It's uh, Anyway. Um, <laughs> How would you like that team anyways? I don't know. Anyway. Uh, anyway <laughs> uh, I don't know. I just whatever. Um, okay. I, I think we'll move on. Uh, so,
0: that was 4-2. Just say Montreal lost 4-2. Which they took the lead in the 17th minute. Dele scored. And at the end of the day... The better team won, New York won 4-2, with uh, great goals and assists by Thierry Henry. He took over that game like he always does, and against Montreal at least. And that gave us three more points for New York and the supporters' shield in the playoff race.
1: It's all the only blocks for the impact at this point in time. I think yep. that their, their tragic number to be eliminated is uh, 17 points or something like that, so... Yeah. uh it uh, doesn't doesn't look good for the impact in terms of the MLS playoffs, but it hasn't for a few months now.
0: And, and for, it hasn't looked good at all this season.
1: And it's yeah. fine. We, we uh, that's the thing with
0: the state the type of season we had, and you know this from Toronto, you get used to it by the time that it's actually official. You already know you've known for months that you're not going to make the playoffs, so the blow is not that hard to take. It's uh, it's just a thousand small cuts, except uh, on the exception of one big slash. So. The pain is all—it's gone now.
1: Yeah, yeah. TFC was pretty much unofficially, officially eliminated from the playoffs nine games into a season once. So, um, you know, that's that's not uh, that that's put things in perspective a little bit. Yeah. Uh, speaking of playoff races, uh, TFC and Vancouver are both in it. Both of them had setbacks this week. Um, Toronto was a little bit more tragic, and it invoked a lot of really bad memories at BMO Field. And before we get into the Tobias time uh, debate. Um, <laughs> I do like want to point out that if you look at the overall sort of a plus minus kind of thing on this season, that Toronto has actually gained more points in the so-called Tobias time, which I unofficially have defined as anything after the 80th minute, uh, than they have lost this year. So uh, even though the memory is fresh on the, the Chicago debacle, and it was, uh, I think that we need to put the full perspective in there. Um, two former TFC players scored in the last 20 minutes of the game.
0: I think that's it, why you had a bad feeling for that game, Win. It had nothing to do with Tobias. It's because it's Earnshaw and Amarokwai was scored, yeah.
1: Yeah, and Amarokwai was here for a cup of coffee, so I don't <laughs> really view him as much of a former TFC player. Robert Earnshaw hurts a little bit more, and uh, you did see that he didn't really... Uh, Robert didn't subscribe to the "don't celebrate-against-former-teams philosophy when he scored the goal. He did run to the corner with his arms outstretched. Uh, he said after the game that it was a way to say hello to Toronto, or say goodbye to Toronto and hello to Chicago at the same time. Almost his first touch on the ball, a diving header, it was a nice ball. Um, Earnshaw is actually, it's a shame, because had we known that Dyke was going to get hurt, I think that, and how how would you have known that, but had yeah. you, had you known that, um, you might have offered Earnshaw a little bit more money uh, to come back and play another season for Toronto. He would have been a really good option in that Luke Moore kind of role, I think.
0: He would have had better service this year, that's for sure, too.
1: Yeah, a little bit of an upgrade from that. And I, and it's just a shame, but hindsight is 2020, right? Sure. Uh, and the decision TFC made in the off-season to not overpay for him was at the time viewed as a great example, as Bezvichanko finally having an understanding of what players' values are within the context of an MLS salary cap and, and not overpaying for, for players that he had a sentimental attachment to. And I think certainly Earnshaw deserves a lot of credit for, for doing what he did for Toronto in the time that he was here, because it wasn't a great time. Uh, but he certainly wasn't a player, for those that want to have revisionist history today, that, that TSC should have signed at the time for the money that he would have cost. Uh, however, it still is not great to watch a former player score against you. <laughs> and that is what happened uh, and certainly made a very sour taste in the mouths of most TFC player, or fans, I should say, and I'm sure hopefully the players as well. Speaking um,
0: of sour taste, Dwayne, uh Vancouver Whitecaps lost 2 nothing to the LA Galaxy.
1: Yeah, you know what, that's, that's I think, a case of, uh, from what I saw, of just the LA exerting themselves of where they are. Um, I know that if you look at the standings, you're not going to see them on top because they had a bit of a slump at the start, but... Eh, I there's mean, still some games in hands as well, mm-hmm. but LA to me, along with Kansas City, are one, one, two the best right now. I know Santa, our Seattle fans are going to argue that, um, <laughs> and certainly Seattle had, had an impressive performance this week, uh, beating up on Portland. Uh, but I, I just view LA as the team really to beat in the West right now, and I think that that performance against Vancouver was, was something that uh, really is stamped home where they, relatively speaking, where those te- two teams are right now. No.
0: You're uh, absolutely right. And it's the LA Galaxy. I think you're, it's your opinion. It's, gonna be my, it's my opinion, too, that Galaxy can be our favorite still for the Dallas Cup final, especially the way the LA Galaxy are putting that Bruce Arena blueprint for Major League Soccer season in effect again this season. It's not how you start. It's how you end. And they're getting hot right now.
1: Yeah, I, I, I uh, put a little back down in the LA Galaxy to win the championship about a month ago. Um, got got about ten to one odds on that. So uh, we'll see. I, I think that the that they are a team that you're going to have to have a very good chance to be staying in the confetti. They're they're certainly one of three or four uh, people will put uh, Salt Lake into that mix as well. I think certainly um, if you look at the the play of Romaldo at, at the back there and Beckerman uh, just sort of running, just sitting on top of the defense. They they've had a great year in Salt Lake as well. Uh, playing above expectations early on to get some points that maybe they didn't deserve and then just sort of building on that. And if you look at their their underlying metrics right now, Salt Lake is right up there with the top teams in the league too. But if I had to um, had to pick, as we said a minute ago, it would be LA v. KC, uh, probably in Kansas City. I think Kansas City is going to pull out because of the Week East to win the Supporters' Shield. And I know that's going to irritate the Seattle listeners, but uh, you have to prove it. You've been there. So close so many times that you're gonna to have to prove it before we believe you first uh, believe you now. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And, you know, I think that wraps up the King Review and the show for this week, right?
1: Yeah, we can leave it at that. The only other quick comment I had is that the worry on the TFC front is the injuries, and that's gotta oh. be the biggest factor there. Caldwell to start and only play twenty minutes was an odd decision. Um hopefully it really was precautionary then they brought him out. Um retweak yeah. his outstring or something? Well, they started him in the uh he pulled himself out after 20 minutes. They said after the game that it was just precautionary. Uh, Jackson went, or sorry, not Jackson. Morrow got down with a hamstring. He looks like he might be up for a couple weeks. They put Jackson back at fullback again, where he's looked disastrous. Why they're not giving Ashton Morgan a chance um, is baffling to so many of us. They have a natural left back there. Why you wouldn't put him in is, like, how bad is he performing in training that he's not even going to get a snip in his natural position, and instead you're going to play a guy in Jackson that's clearly out of his element at fullback. I don't know. But that's that's a question that only Ryan Nelson can answer us. And unfortunately, he's not talking about it right now in any real way. And he, those that are covered on a day-to-day basis aren't asking questions about Aston Morgan. He's just completely fallen off of the radar. But on that note, Kevin, uh, we've got a long one. Thanks again to Richard uh, for coming on. Uh, I, as I said uh, in the post from that, post postamble, I just made a word up, uh, that uh, we will, we'll follow that story and uh, maybe talk to Richard a little bit later. But until that time, Kevin, I'll let you send us out.
0: Have a great soccer,
1: folks. Stitcher Radio. The things might come
0: to those who wait, not to those who wait too late. we got to go for all we know,
1: just the two of us. We can make it if we try.